Well, good morning to those of you that are here. We're a small crowd this morning. I can see all of you. None of you are in the dark, really, which is awesome. Um, And hello, I've never streamed anything online before, so that's kind of fun. Um, Jackie told me the other day, my wife, if you don't know, that uh, since we've all been just stuck away from church, that we're all here, that I could go really long because you've been really coming, wanting to come back together as a church. So if I go really long today, it's her fault. She said I could do it. Um, I'm, I'm going to try not to, but Josh, I'm sorry. Uh, psalm 34 is where we're at, not 32, but I didn't want to say anything because it was a cool psalm and it was just fun to hear. Um, but we'll be in Psalm 34. Um, but first off, I, I just, I just want to say that this, this psalm was hard to, to work on. It was hard to prepare for. Um, initially, when I first started looking through this, it was kind of at the height of some of the, the major protests that were happening, not long after the killing of George Floyd. And I was wrestling with my own thoughts of, of protesting, of racism, of social injustice, and, and watching so many videos of brutality happening that only were seeming to escalate over a very short period of time. And I was looking at my own life, and, and honestly, in a really in an embarrassing way, I realized that I have very few friends who are not white. And some of that's out of my hands, certainly. I grew up in Idaho, and I can count on one hand the amount of non-white kids that were in my school, of a school of, you know, 2,000 people. But that doesn't excuse anything. But I've begun to realize that I've been largely apathetic to the appalling racism and injustice that so many black people and people of color face on a daily basis. So I was wrestling with this at the same time I'm reading this psalm, and then a Facebook post was brought to my attention, a post by a white Christian guy who was essentially claiming in this post that systemic racism doesn't exist, and this really bothered me, and it bothered me for a long time, and it still really does. And two things bothered me about it. One, that I could just close my laptop or just keep scrolling by, Because I have that freedom to choose. Because I'm a white guy. And that really was kind of bothering me. I am most likely not going to get pulled over while I go for a jog. Or I'm not going to be followed by a store employee when I'm in a store. Or as the video I saw two weeks ago, a black guy walks into Walmart and all of a sudden he's being called horrific names just because he walked into the store. It bothered me that I could walk away. And secondly, it bothered me because I knew that even if I were to say something to this particular person, nothing would happen. My words would fall on deaf ears. To a person who once held very great authority and could have elicited change far better than I could ever do. And I felt powerless. And I felt defeated. And if I'm being completely honest, I felt in a very microscopic way what it must feel like to have been fighting this fight for so long and have no voice or feel like you have no voice. And here I am feeling defeated and unable to speak. How then to those people who are oppressed and persecuted feel? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, to what can I compare this generation They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking and they say he has a demon. So I, the son of man, came eating and drinking and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard, 
a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And I feel like this is what so many black people are thinking today. We protested quietly by taking a knee and you mocked and ridiculed us. So we protest loudly and you shoot us and you beat us. My point is this. In the midst of all of this, in the middle of COVID, rampant unemployment, racism, discrimination, persecution, political strife everywhere, hugely polarizing social media posts, and so on. How can I have the audacity to walk up to anybody, to walk up to someone grieving, to walk up to George Floyd's family, or someone protesting, or someone hurting, or anyone in between, and say to them what verse 8 says of Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. In the middle of just all the chaos and just garbage of life that's happening around us, how can I dare say to someone, taste and see that the Lord is good? Our answer lies in David and how he arrived at that place. How he arrived at the place to say, I will praise the Lord at all times. Come and taste how amazing my God is. So let me read verses 1 through 8 here of Psalm 34. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. And then verse 9. You who are his holy ones fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Before we just dive into this, I want to say a real quick word about the structure of this psalm. This psalm was written in an acrostic. Now, we use acrostics all the time. Uh, for example, if you've studied music, you know E-G-B-D-F, every good boy deserves fudge, or as I saw, every good boy does fine, uh, is, is a way to learn the scales, right? Or the, the treble clef, or whatever it's called. I don't study music, you know, you all are back here. Um, but that's, that's a, uh, an acrostic to remember that. Or one we more commonly use, LOL, laugh out loud. is an acrostic that we use, right? The letters stand for something else. And what's cool about this acrostic used in Psalms, Psalm 34 in particular, is that's an alphabetic acrostic in the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now remember the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. So uh, verse 1 starts with, you know, basically their version of A and then B and so on. And although we don't know why it was written in this particular way, uh, most theologians assume that it's a, new, uh, a memory device because it's a lot easier to remember what the next sentence will be in your psalm if you know what the letter's going to start with. So if I know, okay, I'm on B, the next letter's going to be C, and so on, it's easier to remember. And the last thing I want to say is, is poetry is very difficult to translate, especially translate across languages, and especially when there's something like an alphabetic acrostic happening. There's loss that happens. There's meanings that are changed a little bit from one translation to another because it's very difficult to replicate something so specific as an alphabetic acrostic. As we see in our English version, verse 1 doesn't start with A. 
for a student to start with B. And I want to give you something to ponder, something that you've probably never thought about before. Typically, in our English translations, the translators have gone with the correct approach, I would say, there's nothing wrong with it at all, uh, of doing a very direct translation. Okay, this is what the word is, this is what it means, let's translate that directly. Um, and we're going to look at that here in just a little bit of some differences. Um, but some of them are more specific, some of them are more literal, some of them take the meaning of the word and try and make it a little bit more modern English or whatever. But they try and be very specific and mimic the language. But they typically haven't tried to mimic the grace and the style of a poem. And especially when it comes to something here, like an alphabetic acrostic. So my question for you is, should the translators try? Would it help if this psalm was translated in an alphabetic acrostic? And I found one, some guy, I'm just going to read the first couple of verses. Uh, he did it. So he said, verse 1, A, at all times I will praise the Lord. B, because I boast in the Lord, the afflicted will hear and rejoice. C, come let us praise his name together. Desperate, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from my fears. Everyone who looks to him is radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. F, from all his troubles, the poor man was saved when he called on the Lord. And G, great is the Lord, whose angels guard those who fear him and deliver them. It's very similar. I thought it was pretty cool. And he had the whole psalm. Uh, I'm sure you could find it online. I don't know if there's necessarily a right way or a wrong way. There's, there's a wrong way to translate, for sure. Um, but something to think about, you know, as, as we read through the Psalms, uh, there's meaning there. There's, there's different meanings in poetry. So just keep that in mind. So anyhow, let's look at verse 1 of Psalm 34. And it's not the verse you're thinking of. Hopefully, all of your Bibles have a little beginning part, and most likely it's in italics, which says, Psalm 34, something along the lines of, of David when he pretended to be insane or changed his behavior, as some translations say, before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. See, in the Hebrew Bible, this is actually verse 1. It's in the text. It's not just a, a little thing that your Bible says. A lot of times we have that, especially in the New Testament. We have these little taglines in bold that say, oh, this is what's going on, or they give you know, little helps to say, oh, this is the Beatitudes or whatever. This is actually in the text, the Psalm of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech. So clearly, the context is very important. And when you read through Psalms, if you have a Psalm, like Psalm 34 doesn't have it, uh, that little italic bit. So just be aware that that's typically verse 1. So the context is very important. So what is the context? Well, to look at that, we need to look at 1 Samuel chapter 21. So if you flip over to there, and I'm going to give you the super quick, hopefully 90-ish second summary of what's happened up to this point. So 1 Samuel 21. So the people of Israel were looking around, and they had been having judges for a really long time. And judges were basically people sent by God to get the people of Israel back on track in a super quick nutshell. And they were looking around at all of their neighbors, and they said, our neighbors all have kings. That looks pretty cool. We want one too. So they go to Samuel, and you could read the story of Samuel and how he came. Uh, Samuel was basically the last judge in, in the, the line of judges and kind of the, the last Old Testament judge. And they go to Samuel and say, talk to God, we want, we want a king. 
And God sends a message back through Samuel and says, no, you don't want a king, one, because I'm your king. And two, you don't want a king because it's going to be terrible for you. This king that you set up is going to enslave your people. He's going to conscript your sons and your daughters into his service. And ultimately, it's going to lead to your destruction. And the people said, yes, do that. Let's, let's make that happen. Bring it on. And so they did. So God gave them Saul to be their king. And Saul, he, he was in over his head. I think at the very beginning, he may have tried but ultimately, he was a terrible, terrible king. To the point where God said, I regret that I made him king. God says to Samuel at some point, how long are you going to sit here and cry over who we've chosen? Let's go out and let's anoint another one. And so Samuel is directed to David. Now David is very young at this point. He's out in the field tending the sheep. Uh, and he's anointed there as the new king, as the next king. Now there's some transition that takes place uh, over the next few chapters. And, and David isn't immediately king. But this has happened behind Saul's back. Saul doesn't really know what's going on. So David's been anointed king. Not too long after he's been anointed... He's taking a meal to his brothers who are on the front lines of a battle against the Philistines. And there, he hears the giant Goliath issue his challenge. We probably all know this story. Uh, the, two, the two armies, uh, Israel and uh, the Philistines, were on each side of this huge valley. And every day, Goliath would march down. He's this huge man. And he would yell out and taunt the, the nation of Israel and say, Send me your champion." Let's save all these lives. Let's fight one-on-one. -on -one. Your best against me, winner take all. And then he would insult, insult God, insult the people, and it was just, he did it day in and day out. And we know the story. David hears Goliath, and uh, he feels God behind him, and he takes some stones from the river, fights Goliath, and defeats him, and cuts off his head with Goliath's own sword. Now, Goliath is from Gath which will become important here to remember. And after David's victory, this song springs up. Saul has slain his, his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now, not literally, because David hasn't killed ten thousands of people yet. He will eventually kill many. Um, but this song really got Saul angry. Really angry. And he started pursuing David. And a couple chapters right before chapter 21 in 1 Samuel, we see David, he ends up making a pact with his best friend Jonathan, who's Saul's son, um, and he has to leave him. He has to leave his best friend, and David flees for his life, leaving everything and everyone behind. And that's where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10. So David fled from Saul's presence, and went away to King Achish of Gath. Remember where Goliath is from. But Achish's servant said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Don't they sing about him during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. So David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Look, you see this man is crazy, said Achish to his servants. Why do you bring him to me? 
do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought another one to go act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? And then chapter 22, verse 1 says, So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. Now some of you may have noticed that it says here that the name Abimelech is not mentioned there in 1 Samuel as it is in Psalms. Well, this is the, the vast majority of scholars believe that this is very likely the same person. Abimelech is probably the royal title for the king and not his proper name, which is Akish. It was not uncommon to have more than one name. For example, Gideon in Judges chapter 6 and chapter 7 was also called Jerubbabel. Solomon, David's son, who will come later, was also known as Jedidiah in 2 Samuel. So it's not uncommon to have a proper name and then a, a, a title name. Look at the, the lineage of the kings of England and all of their different names that they have right now. Um, Prince of Wales and so on. So we're used to that kind of thing. So this is the same person. So David, he's fleeing for his life. And to make matters worse, he's all alone at this point. And out of necessity for his life, out of fear for his friend's life, he leaves them all and escapes. Now it's important to note here that he escapes to Gath the land that has produced at least one giant, right? We know Goliath is from there, maybe more. An enemy of Saul. David ran from one danger to another. He fled from one place to another place where he thought he knew Saul wouldn't chase him into the home of the enemy. Now, see, I told you I was going to work a Star Wars analogy into this, but uh, so I know lots of you based on all our Zoom calls that we've had over the last few weeks, are Star Wars fans, so, so don't hate me for quoting from The Phantom Menace, but I am going to. So right after the initial encounter with the new enemy, Darth Maul, Qui-Gon leads his little merry band of people with their broken ship to the hostile planet of Hoth, or um, of Tatooine, which is controlled by these terrible criminals called the Huts. And Although Qui-Gon doesn't know it, the queen is with him, and she's protesting to him and says, why in the world have you taken to us such a dangerous place? And he says, you're right. This is a dangerous place. But they're not looking for us. David has that exact same mentality here. I'm going to go to, yes, a dangerous place, yes, an enemy, but they're not looking for me. This should be good. But unfortunately, for David, he was recognized. And they said, aren't you the one who sing, they sing this song about? I actually got it stuck in my head. Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. I keep hearing it all the time. Wait, that means you killed our champion. You killed Goliath. How dare you? So face to face before the king, David fakes his insanity. He's drooling, he's riding on things. He does such a good job at faking his insanity, the king throws him out. Do I need another crazy man? What's wrong with you people? I feel like I tell one of my kids, normally Allison, at least once a week, don't take another bug inside the house, please. We have enough. A kiss just like that. I've got enough crazy people here. Why do you bring another one before me? So David escapes, and he finds himself alone, abandoned in a cave. And, and I think it would be quite understandable if he had curled up and cried or written something sad or complained about his situation. Instead, he writes 
I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. David is resolved that despite whatever his circumstances, wherever he finds himself in, that he will bless the Lord. In fact, he's so enamored with God that the word Lord, it should read in your Bibles, capital O, a little capital, or a big capital L, a little capital O, a little capital R, and a little capital D. Anytime you see that in the Old Testament, that's the official name for Yahweh. That, that's the direct translation for Yahweh. This word, the Lord, appears in almost every single verse. See, I, I got to get the word out. I got to tell everyone, this is who has saved me, and God would continue to save me. Notice how his praise is characterized in verse 1, at all times or continually, depending on your translation. David is reminding us as the reader and himself that the Lord is to be praised in good and difficult times. God does not change. His mercy doesn't change. His mercy is always present. Our faith, therefore, must continue to affirm his praise and his presence. Our praise of God should not be something that is predicated by our own personal circumstances or our emotions or our feelings or or whatever it is, but should instead be a normal activity as recipients of God's grace. And David is trying to call us to remind ourselves of that. So he moves on in verse 2. He says, My soul will make its boast in the Lord, that the humble hear and be glad. Now, the various Bible translations we're going to look at here in a second are very different on the second half of this verse. But the first half of this verse, what they generally all agree on is the use of the word boast. What does it mean to boast in the Lord? We tend to think of the word boasting as, as largely a negative thing. If I were to say, I could beat you all in disc golf, that would be a boast. It might be true, but it's still a boast, right? If anybody wants to play later, I'm totally down. Um, Or tomorrow, we have our affinity group, disc golf tomorrow. But it's different. The Hebrew word here is hallel, literally spelled H-L-L, because for whatever reason, the ancient Hebrews didn't use vowels when they wrote their words down. But it's the word we get, hallelujah, Hallel, hallelujah. Hallel literally quite means to admire or to eulogize, to praise, or to exclaim hallelujah, which hallelujah means praise the Lord, or shortened to praise Yah. Yahweh, praise Yah. Yah being the shortened version of Yahweh. Whenever you hear the sound in Hebrew, the word Yah, it should automatically direct your mind that this is talking about the name of God. For example, The name Jeremiah, God will raise. Isaiah, God is salvation. Or Elijah, the Lord is my God. We use it a lot. Here's your quick Hebrew lesson for the day. So David is saying that his soul, his innermost being, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. It cannot help but exclaim these praises to God. Praise the Lord. Just everything that I am, my whole being is going to praise the Lord. And what is the result of his praise? Well, that's where we get to look at the second half of this verse, which will be up on the screen behind me. So as we can see, uh, I've got five different translations. Uh, the, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard, the Christian Standard Bible, which used to be the Holman, uh, the, the New International Version, the NIV, and the New Living Translation. Uh, starting with 
you can argue the first three can be interchanged, but uh, argue, arguably the most direct literal translation moving down to the more paraphrase to use a, a term. So the ESV says, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. The NASB says, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. Again, the very beginning is the same. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Similar, CSB says, I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. So those first three are very similar. And then the last two, totally different. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. And then the new living, which I personally really love the new living. Uh, I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Very different in the second half of the verse. Uh, the first verse is largely the same, the first half of the verse, but the second half is very different. And the reason is, is because this word humble or afflicted or helpless is a, seemingly a very difficult one for the translators to sort out. And the reason for this is partly because it only occurs 19 times in the entirety of the Old Testament. So there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of uh, text to compare it to, to figure out what it means. Sometimes when translators are trying to sort out difficult words, they will look to other verses to see how it's used. And there's just not a lot of that. And then when we hear of the word humble, we tend to think of our very modern English way of saying that. Okay, humble means put others first, don't be proud, don't boast, be modest, and so on. And I think if we take that, that meaning behind that, through to this verse, we are led down a path that I don't think David wanted us to go. He's not saying that only those who are putting others first or only those who are not proud will rejoice, like it says in the first three. While that translation is technically correct, this word literally means more often the poor, the wretched, the oppressed, the afflicted, suffering, or, or bent over as if carrying a heavy burden. David, David is exclaiming, my soul praises the Lord, my innermost being praises the Lord to such an extent that those who are suffering can't help but rejoice. It's no wonder then that his next statement is, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. He moves from a very singular praise, I will, to join with me in celebrating this, that our, our souls, our innermost beings is crying out to God in praise, especially for those who are afflicted and suffering. Join with me in celebrating that. This begs the question, though, why is David so excited to have everyone join with him in magnifying God when he seems to be at rock bottom? And he's in a cave, so we can literally say he's at rock bottom. Gratefully, he tells us how in verses 4 through 7. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, referring to himself, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Did you catch it? How is it that David can make these, these statements, this praise while he's at rock bottom? He says, I prayed to the Lord. I sought the Lord in verse 4. I prayed to, the, to God. 
and he answered me. Now, surely we know that David has been praying all along. There's a reason why he was anointed at such a young age. We know that he had a unique relationship with God. We know he's been praying all his entire time during his flight from Goliath, or his fight with Goliath, his flight from Saul after that. But can you imagine how nervous he was being brought before King Akish of Gath? knowing that he has the very real possibility of being killed right then. And as he's thinking up his plan, okay, what can I do? What can I do? All right, let's, let's pretend I'm crazy. Let's foam at the mouth a bit. Let's write on stuff. I got some chalk or who knows what he was writing with. Let's hope this works. And can you imagine his one-line prayers? God, save me. Lord, help me. Please make this work. It's like something out of a movie, right? Or something stupid that Pinky and the Brain would think of. It's crazy. Let's go pretend insanity in front of the king. But it worked. Make no mistake, David could have been killed, but he wasn't. Currently, they are enemies for David, these Philistines. That'll change later on when you keep reading through 1 Samuel. But David defeated their greatest champion. He was in danger, but his prayers were answered. Now, prayer is a powerfully mysterious thing. And how often do we rejoice in our answered prayers? I I think that we do a very poor job in our Western Christian churches of celebrating when prayers are answered. How often was the last time that you heard someone saying, hey, my prayers were answered? Oh, sometimes, yes. But even the little things... How often do we hear those praises? Oh, I've been praying about this for 10 years, and finally my great-aunt Ruth, she became a Christian, or whatever it is. Or, I passed my test. Praise the Lord. I think we do a poor job of that. But how then do we get to a point where we can honestly, joyously praise God? How can we turn to God in the middle of our despair, in the middle of covid in the middle of all these trials and tribulations, wallowing in our depression, our oppression, or persecution. Because I, I think our tendency, our human tendency, is to want to curl up and hide. Stick your head in the sand. Hide like a little turtle inside of its shell. How do we get to the point where we can praise like David did? And I think he tells us how in verse 8 through 10. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Thankfully, David lays out a bit of a roadmap for us on how we can get to praise God by giving us four imperative verbs. Now, if there's any English majors in here, you know what that means. But for the rest of us mortals, an imperative verb is a command. And it's more than just a command. It's a command that has really no room for conversations, no room for disagreement or argument. If I say to one of my kids, clean your room, they might argue, but they have no place to argue in that. Take out the trash, mow the lawn. Those are imperative verbs, verbs that are a command to do something. And he starts, David does, with two of them in verse 8. Taste is one and see is the other. Taste and see. These two commands are powerful when it comes to rejoicing in God. Taste, and by association, smell, 
are some of the strongest associations our brains make. And this is done for good reason. If you eat something and your body has a negative reaction to it, your body needs a way to say, hey, stupid, don't eat that ever again because we might die. Some of you know that I despise cottage cheese. I've said many times that if it were me, cottage cheese in a deserted island, the rescuers would be finding my corpse because I can't eat it. And the reason for this is when I was very young, I ate a bunch of it and then immediately threw it all up all over the table. I don't know if I'm allergic to it or not. I'm going to say that I am because it's horrible. It should be burned at the bottom of every volcano because the cottage cheese is deplorable. Our brains associate taste so strongly. David is trying to tell us taste. Or how about this? Something a little less gross. How many of you have a favorite restaurant? I would venture to say that all of us do. How many of you have told someone else to go there or taken them there? One of my favorite places to eat is just across the street and just behind the corner. Uh, the baguette. For those of you who don't know, it's a Vietnamese sandwich place. It's amazing. I've eaten there with many of you. If not, let's go because I will gladly go with you. Uh, their beef lemongrass sandwich is fantastic. But why do we do this? Why do we tell people about places that we like to eat or, or bring them with this? The reason is it's because we're doing something more than just eating. We're saying, I have experienced something that you have to try. Get in on this. Experience this with me. I have tasted something so amazing that I have to share it with someone else. And David is telling us the exact same thing. Taste this. I have tasted something so amazing, the sweetness of God. I want you to experience it with me also. In the middle of our crazy, crazy lives, taste God. Experience Him. You have to try it. And then similarly, David tells us to see that the Lord is good. So I grew up in Idaho, and I particularly love the Sawtooth Mountains. And I could explain to you all of the cool things that I've seen and done out there. I could explain to you what it looks like, uh, the headwaters to very famous rivers. Or I could show you a picture. That's just one picture, and there's tons of them. I told Chris because I forgot to bring it. I was like, just pick one. I don't care which one. I know it's going to be awesome, whichever one you pick. Um, I think I've been here, actually. But if I really wanted to take your breath away, as they say, a picture's worth a thousand words. But if I really wanted to leave you speechless, I would take you there. Actually, I think it was like next week we were planning, you know, Matthew McKenzie, we were going to go camping here, uh, but COVID's kind of changed our plans a little bit, so maybe next year. Why? Because I wanted them to experience the majesty and the glory that is this place in a very remote part of central Idaho. David is telling us, taste how good God is. See how good God is. Be in that. Experience that. Don't just take my word for it, he's saying. I want you to taste God. See him. Experience him. Next up, David says, blessed is the one who takes refuge. The, the command here is take refuge. Uh, take refuge literally means to shelter. Command here is to shelter with God, to take refuge with God. Have you ever been a, in a tent? That's hard to say, in a tent in the middle of the night 
in a big storm, and the tent's all flapping around, and you're just lying there listening to the wind blow, and you can't help but think, am I going to be here in the morning, or am I going to end up in a heap down in the bottom of the hill, or is the tent going to rip apart? And when you're in those moments, you just can't help but just wish that I wish I was at home in my warm, cozy bed where it's safe, where it's secure. I'm longing for that. I'm longing for that well-built house in the middle of the storm. David is trying to get us to realize that just like a tent being buffeted in the storm, so too are those who do not find their refuge in God who are easily buffeted by the trials and tribulations of life, thrown here and there by the winds and the waves. And if this sounds familiar, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. And it collapsed with a great crash. David is trying to say, why taste and see that God is good? Because he's the only one that provides shelter. God is that rock. God is that foundation. He's the only one that we can find our refuge in when life around us is crap. He's the only one. And the fourth verb, fourth imperative that David uses is fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Honestly, we could go on for multiple weeks about what it means to fear the Lord. It's a very long and complicated process. But I really like the way Tim Keller said it because we're running out of time. But he said, the fear of the Lord is not to be scared of the Lord, even though the Hebrew word has overtones of that, but it also has overtones of respect and awe. Fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed or to be controlled by something. The fear of the Lord, then, is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. That's why the more we experience God's grace, we experience God's forgiveness, the more we experience a trembling awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and all that he has done for us. Fearing him means bowing down before him out of amazement at his glory and beauty. David says, fear the Lord for those who fear lack nothing. Now, David is not preaching a prosperity-type gospel here. He's not saying, okay, fear the Lord, and you're going to get rich. Or, or fear the Lord, and you're going to have a mansion. Remember, David's sitting in a cave. He has nothing. He's very aware that fearing the Lord doesn't necessarily bring earthly riches and earthly possessions. David was calling us to something bigger. You see, it's never been about our happiness or our earthly possessions or our circumstances or our health or or whatever it is that we can come up with. It's not about COVID. It's not about persecution and racism. It's It's not about that. Yes, that's a huge factor, but it's always been about God. David is praising God in a cave because only God can save. 
fear the Lord because only God has the authority to judge us and the power to save us. That's what fearing the Lord means. How can we praise God in our lives when everything around us is just collapsing, it seems like, and, and just the craziness, craziness that's going on? How? We do it the exact same way and the exact same reasons that David did. Taste and see. Take refuge in God. Fear the Lord because he has the authority and the power to save. Earlier I quoted Matthew 11. We sang the dirge for you and you did not dance. A few sentences later, just right after that, Jesus then goes on to say, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. David is trying to get us to experience God in such a way that we find our shelter in him, that we turn to him when life around us is nothing but chaos and storms to taste and see and experience the goodness that is God. At all times, in every situation, I will bless the Lord. In every event, good or bad, I will be thankful for his mercies. I will always express my sense of goodness towards God. The idea is, is that we do it publicly and privately, in prosperity, in adversity, in safety, in danger, in joy, and in sorrow. I feel like I'm saying wedding vows. It will be a great principle in his life, he's trying to say. He's trying to say, my soul cannot help but express who God is. Join in with me. God is always and has always been and will always be something uh, to be adored and praised. God's goodness to save us is so sweet. David is telling us, taste it, experience it with me. Come, praise God with me. And then when you do, blast it from the mountaintops. Magnify the Lord with me. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for men like David who wrote these words. God, when, when life around him was falling apart, when life was terrible. God, we have an example of what it's like to praise you at all times. God, I pray that, that instead of turning to ourselves, instead of walling, wallowing in our frustrations or our, uh, whatever's going on around us, God, that we would instead turn to you. doesn't mean we don't have work to do. David had to still get out of that cave. But God, we know that you're there. And I pray that, that when we reach out and taste you and, and we see you and, and find our refuge in you, God, that, that we would be so blessed that we can't help but just get it on everyone else around us, that our souls can't help but praise you. God, we love you. And we pray, amen.